You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Greetings to Royersford, Pennsylvania. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Looks like uh, Royersford is a little, uh, again, northwest of Philadelphia, also just outside of King of Prussia, Philadelphia. We mentioned King of Prussia a couple couple uh, months ago on another podcast. Yeah, I like the, the name of that town. I, I kind of look it up. Maybe I'll have to remember after the podcast is over to finally look up why, how King of Prussia got its name. Um, hopefully Wikipedia's got a little article on that. I'm guessing it was after the King of Prussia. Wow. Mind blown. That I would have never Insight. thought. I would have never thought, Glenn. <laughs> All right, how you been up how you been doing lately? Uh good. Summer. Summer, you know, lots of summer stuff. Good yep. fun stuff with family and kids, but I can't look, I I I know you're gonna laugh when you hear this. It's just this week is really hot here. We almost are hitting a hundred. So yeah. It's, oh no! It's, it's it's a little warm in the dog days of summer, but uh, it's good. Uh, it's been a been a good but busy summer. Well, the um, the the top level of OSAC uh, committees, you know, the the top board and then all the advisory boards, evidently met this week here in Phoenix, and uh, they just sent out a an email to the rest of the groups that are going to start meeting here shortly. Um, you know the uh, the friction ridge subcommittee and other subcommittees. Um, you know coming up here uh, just in a couple of days, and one one of the items in that email is as opposed to all other meetings that we've had where uh, dress is specifically business casual. Uh, dress at the upcoming meeting here in a couple days in Phoenix is listed as casual, just straight casual. <laughs> Shorts allowed. So, so it, it, that's what that's what all the questions was. So um, Melissa Gish sent out the you know the forwarded on the email to the rest of us, and the first response was, "All right, shorts and flip flops. Here we come." <laughs> Very cool. I, I did send out a warning, you know. Everyone, make sure you drink water. There's a lot of desert hiking mountain trails nearby to the to the resort. So uh, if you go, you can do that if you're like you know into hiking and stuff. But drink water. Also, you know, helpful advice like if you get into the shuttle or a car, don't touch any of the metal parts, <laughs> especially oh, if it's a dark yeah, colored car. It, the the help really helpful thing is when you buckle your seatbelt, don't touch the actual buckle, the metal parts of it. Use the strap part of the seatbelt as kind of an oven mitt to to buckle yourself in. Wow! It's, yeah, I never thought of that. I suppose it's things I you suppose. learn growing up here. But anyway, <laughs> uh, no, I I feel for you because I know the humidity is a little higher out there, and and closing in on a hundred is definitely bad. But um, I, I saw something in the news recently that um, reminded. Uh, Mia, of some of our most successful podcasts to date. It looks like they're making season two of Making a Murderer. Oh, oh okay. Electric Bugaloo? <laughs> uh, the the Making a Murderer Strikes Back? Um, Perhaps, yes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, Th- this time it's personal? This, 
we'll maybe do it, you know, next year, assume, assuming it comes out probably next year sometime. Uh, we'll have to do another six part series on the, uh, uh, on, on that, uh, that show too. So anyway, uh, you know, with, um, with you know, all the listens that we've gotten for that, uh, for those podcasts and, and all the time we spent talking about it, we'll at least have to mention it when, uh, when it comes back out, who knows what it's going to be on. Heck, maybe he'll be acquitted by then and, and out, uh, a free man once again, who knows? Well, yeah, I, I don't think we talked about it on here, but you know, there are, either in the news or various media outlets, there's talk about the different kinds of tests that are available that they might be able to to do on some of the evidence. Although I think this is going to go down like the Sam Shepard case and some of these other, you know, famous cases. We're never going to know, you know, so to speak, right. if this or that, and it'll always have a little bit of controversy to it because no matter what, whatever the evidence ends up showing, it seems, you know, like it'll never conclusively show one thing or the other. Although one of the tests that, you know, I thought was being considered was a sort of dating, like a protein dating on the blood that they can tell how old a you know, certain blood stain might be based on some new technology that's come out. There's a certain decay rate in, in you know, these proteins. and uh, Or even carbon dating, for that matter, uh, was one thing that was proposed. And because wow. I always thought carbon dating wouldn't, you know, tell you that much because, you know, you needed hundreds of years between. But it turns out right. you know, that... Uh, no, over a decade they can they can they've got some precision. So if something is over a decade in difference, they would be able to tell the difference between the two. Yeah, I, and that that surprised me a little bit. But you know, given when they think the blood was obtained from the tube that was sitting in the you know in the the county office area, right? You know uh, that 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 would have had some time from. It would have been long enough that they might be able to detect a, a carbon difference. So either that or this new technique, uh, they think they might be able to possibly age the stains that were collected in the, the vehicle. Hmm. I guess it, I mean, it kind of makes sense maybe. I, I mean, I guess I would assume that it's more on a log scale. So one year to ten years, and, you know, maybe that's, yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. Um, but well, we'll find out with the, when the next season starts. Um, but today, well, we, we're going to probably go two episodes on this. I'm just kind of feeling. But uh, today we should get started real quick uh, because uh, we uh, I, I finally watched the uh, American Crime Story, the, the, the O.J. Simpson um, show that was on, the miniseries that was on FX, I believe. Yes. Uh, and you watched that and also the ESPN uh, documentary uh, on OJ. Yes. So today is all about the OJ case. Uh, I, I know. Okay. So you're a little bit older than I am. And um, for me, OJ thing was kind of a kind of a weird thing because it was like this entire cultural touchstone, you know, for the whole country. And I missed like huge portions of it. Well, how old were you and what were you doing at the time of the White Bronco chase? Well, this was 94, right? The the White Bronco? Yeah. Right. So I was I was in between my sophomore and junior years of high school. I just turned 16. Uh, and I was actually working at a summer camp uh, up in the uh, the mountains of Arizona um, with no TV, 
no access to you know anything um we we, we ran a, a a um uh you know basically a cable up the side of the hill just so we could get a radio station so it would you know whatever they talked about on the radio that we would sometimes listen to was kind of the only information that we got um so you know for me it was always like wait the, you mean the guy from the naked gun i mean i was also you know didn't really remember mm-hmm. oj from any football stuff so i mean i knew he was a you know really famous football player but you know my main knowledge of him came from naked gun and uh so i never saw the white bronco chase um you know, and or all of that kind of thing. I just kind of heard about it later because I was so far up in the woods without access to any kind of TV that I, I missed all of that. Um, and then when the trial was going on, I didn't really see a whole lot of it because I was in school. I was in high school, junior year now, uh, and I guess into senior year. Um, and, you know, you would kind of see updates occasionally, you know, uh, staying up late would see the dancing Itos on, on Jay Leno. But, um, I don't know. It was just kind of, uh, I, I do remember though that the, our teacher wheeled in a, a TV, um, you know, back in the days when you would have TVs on giant rollers, t- you know, strapped down and stuff. I wheeled that in when the verdict came in. Um, mm. and, and we all watched that, uh, in class live, but, um, hmm. you know, other than that, it, it was, I was kind of this, I don't know, it feels like I kind of missed out on, on all that. You know, actually it feels kind of the same way about the Oklahoma City. I was in Mexico when the Oklahoma City bombing happened and only kind of saw stuff about it a few days later after I got back. So that's, that's funny. You should mention that. I was actually just thinking about that, the Oklahoma City bombing, when you were talking about wheeling the TV in and watching it, that popped in my head. That That's funny because <laughs> I do remember where I was when that happened because I had just moved to Minnesota and I was working at a nursing home in the kitchen because I had to, I used to work in a kitchen in Detroit um, as a sous chef like understudy. So I got here, found a job where I could do some cooking and you know, went to a nursing home. I was only there a few weeks. And that's the one thing I, that's the only thing I remember about that place is that's when that <laughs> happened. And we all stopped what we were doing and got around a TV and, and watched. But I actually wasn't um, near TV to see the OJ uh, verdict. I only saw it in the papers uh, later. But I do remember exactly where I was when the Bronco chase happened. I was living in Detroit at the time I was out of college. And um, my buddies and I used to get together every Friday night. We used to play a card game, a collectible card game known as Magic (laughs) the Gathering. And Friday was our cigars and beers and, and, and play a little magic. And, uh, that, uh, and we'd often throw on, you know, something on TV or on the, on, you know, on the TV too. And that, uh, that, that had preempted everything else going on. And and so the NBA finals, that's, I didn't know that for years later that they had actually did like a side by side of the NBA finals to watch the, the car chase. I, you know, like I said, I, I had no idea because uh, I wasn't near TV, I had no idea they did that. Yeah, and the uh, uh, the Pist- Detroit Pistons weren't in it that year, but I I think 
I think we might have had that on too, but yeah, anyway, it cut over to the OJ thing. Yeah, I, I, I remember watching it very clearly going, wow, this is very surreal. But then we just got back to our game and it was just on in the background <laughs> the whole, you know, the whole time. Right. Um, but yeah, okay. But I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. The OJ case, honestly, for a very long time has always fascinated me. And it's, it's actually a presentation I, I often give to lay people. If I'm ever asked to go speak to the public or lay people and they want a little forensic thing and I, I usually throw in a few famous cases, uh, this is one of the cases I've always used. And here's what I want to share. I'm really glad these documentaries have come out. And there's so much more information today than was ever available. Um, yeah. You know, I had to watch the testimony live at the time. Uh, occasionally, I might be able to get something on videotape. I would throw in a videotape during the day, go to work, come back, and sift through and see some of the testimony. <laughs> Times um, have changed, huh? <laughs> times have changed. And now you can go to YouTube and see a lot of the testimony. I've gone back and watched so much of it. It's such a it's such a fascinating case to me. When I present to the public, I'm up until now that these documentaries have come out, um, I'm always surprised. And when I go and show the evidence to people, I often get gasps from the audience because going into a lot of people think, oh, he, you know, of course he was guilty. He must have done it. They had DNA evidence. And their thinking usually stopped there. And a lot of, of course, their right. assumption of guilt is based on his later actions and how he you know, later, you know, acted. But when you show them the evidence and talk about the evidence, most people actually are really surprised. And, and, Often back in the 90s or early 2000s, if I was ever asked about this case, my response was, oh, he was guilty. And the evidence was overwhelming. And here is the key bit of evidence that will always convince me. Even if you make an argument, evidence was planted, evidence was effed up, evidence was contaminated. Here's the right. key bit that no one can dispute that at a minimum, he was present at the crime scene. At a minimum. And present enough, given his history, it was good enough for me. Guilty. And when they see that bit of evidence, they go, oh, well, why wasn't that? Why? And then you tell them, well, that wasn't presented at the criminal trial, and here's huh. why. They go, oh, okay. And so then it all kind of, you know. But I, it's it's one of those cases I'm I'm always fascinated to, again, up until recently, as people become, you know, watch these things, become more aware of what actually happened. It was always a great litmus test of, what do you think happened? Why do you think OJ, what was found not guilty? And then, you know, dig in a little bit. And the public, I always thought had, um, you know, really interesting views on this. And, and one of the documentaries, the 30 for 30 special on ESPN, which I think is absolutely fantastic. If you're going to watch anything, watch that. It, it tells the complete story of why OJ was found not guilty. Yeah. Um, it, it was clearly, there were racial issues involved. I mean, and, and you can't look at the OJ case without looking at the history of racism and some key events like the Rodney King event yep. and, and the Latasha Harlan shooting in Los Angeles. And you have to have those things in perspective to know what LA was going through when, you look at the OJ case. So I'm, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this. I'm brimming with excitement. Well, you know, like I said, I, I didn't see the 30 for 30, but, but, um, I, I watched the, uh, the FX, uh, uh, miniseries. 
the, which, yeah, the, the drama series, right? With the drama um, series, right? Um, Not documentary, right? But I mean, it's got all these big name actors and actresses. In well, there. that was the John thing. Travolta it, and <laughs> David Schwimmer. That that was it was that was part of the the entertainment for me was seeing all these people. I, I was right. initially, you know, initially didn't watch it, and then. You know, after we did the making a murderer, you kept talking about it and wanting to do an OJ thing. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll watch it, and was instantly sucked in oh, by, okay. <laughs> by by this by this uh, you know dramatization. Um, you know, David Schwimmer basically doing the same face that he did uh, you know on <laughs> Friends for a number of years, <laughs> like, like he's just kind of tasted something sour, and. Uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner showing up. I yeah. was like, "Hey, it's Theo as AC, uh, you know, right? As AC." Uh, and you know, at first it was kind of weird. Um, uh, John Travolta was a little distracting, you know, because mm-hmm. he had on all this makeup and prosthetics or whatever. Uh, but eventually, he kind of stopped being John Travolta and. Um, the guy that played Johnny Cochran was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the lady he, that played Marsha Clark. He looked Clark, just, just like him. Just yeah. like him. Uh, yeah. Marsha Clark was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, really impressed with with uh, everything in that documentary. And a part of the entertainment was, was just seeing all these people that you know from other things, you know, as these real-life people in... in I, I mean... It, if you just watch it and you you kind of somehow lose all memory of of uh of 90s uh you know things that happened in the world you'd think that it was this crazy melodrama i mean you couldn't make this stuff up yeah. uh, kind of thing just just crazy all the different plot lines and intertwining things and then what a sensation it became uh, you know, to the public that just wanted more and more and more. And, um, and you had the, you know, the kind of the explosion of the 24 hour news cycle. And, yes. and like I said before, the dancing Edos on Jay Leno and, uh, just so much, uh, stuff and discussion and people talking throughout the entire thing. And I learned a bunch of stuff that I had never, never known before. Uh, because I had was only kind of partly paying attention back when it actually happened. Yeah, and for me, uh, you know, when presenting, it's fun to know this OJ case because I often will draw a lot of parallels between the OJ case and the Stephen Avery case. I mean, there are, you know, when you look at the two cases, there's there's a there there are some really uh, interesting parallels and and you're you're right about it being larger than life and i think in fact it was marcia clark on the 30 for 30 espn episode or you know show that you know basically said and i think she's absolutely right looking back at it now you know 25 years it wasn't our fault that we lost this. This was bigger than any of us at the time even had any idea. We had no idea. Yeah. We were swept up in something that we can't. We we. It was bigger than any any one of us. And I think she's absolutely right. She was caught. Try that case at any other point in history, and I think you might get a any other jury in any other kind of city at any other point in history. You get a completely different outcome, but. 
It's, it's true. You have to understand the context of where they were and when they were and what was going on. And it just makes complete sense. And and just, uh, you know, there, like you said, there's just so many fascinating things about the case that when people watch either the, the drama or the, the documentary, you just go, wow, I, I, I had no idea that that's what had happened. And I'm like, I, looking forward to talking about some of those things. So, well. The, oh, yeah, one go. of the first ones is was um, I mean I came out of watching that documentary feeling so so bad for Marsha Clark just mm-hmm. with all the things that she had to go through the the media scrutiny inc- of her appearance well and the incredible sexism from from yeah. like you said the media but also the judge and and the defense team and yes. just um, and her first husband publishing nude photos of her and uh, you know just things that that uh, a man in that situation would not have had to go through yep that's a great observation uh, one of the other things i enjoy again outside of the cases most people don't realize what those jurors had to go through yes and the uh the dramatization is probably the first thing that really emphasizes and, and, and had some great stories, you know, from some of the books the jurors wrote and some of their, their experiences. It's really the first look at what the jurors went through. There's a whole episode dedicated to the jurors and it is, it's amazing uh, because I don't think most people realize they were prisoners for nine months, for nine, nine months, months, they had to stay in a hotel room, could not watch TV listen to the radio even magazines and things like that had to be screened before they could read them they their family was allowed to eventually visit here and there for literally conjugal visits and they they had no access to the outside world their lunch breakfast dinner everything was scheduled and watched over by the police they had zero at there's no internet there's nothing that they can do out in their and for nine months for nine nine for, months it's that's it's crazy they were as much a prisoner as oj was during that trial and that's one of the things that i think comes out in the 30 for 30 special too because they interview a few of the jurors and you know they're still to this day they lost they lost almost, almost a, year. a year of their life getting paid minimum wage to be in the most controversial thing that no one respected what they did and what the outcome was. Right. And, you know, they, they're they angry, they're bitter, and, well, you know, they got death threats. And then threats. they keep disappearing. Like, that, they made that clear in the special is all of a sudden someone would get called away to meet with the judge, yeah. and then they'd pack their bags. And they'd have no idea why this person that they basically, you know, spent every waking moment with for the past six months has just disappeared right and, and they have no explanation why it, it, yeah you end up feeling really sorry for them as well yeah and and these are people who have volunteered to do something for justice and yet they're literally literally being treated you know as if prisoners and, and that was one of the things that the jurors said because you know the interviewer basically said you know you guys only deliberated for a few hours what how how can you look at a case that's nine months long right. when the average is something like a day per week of testimony? Everyone assumed you would be out weeks deliberating. And the woman was, I mean, just blatant. 
Uh, she said, no, we've been deliberating from day one. Every night you go back to her, your hotel room, you are deliberating. <laughs> you're already <laughs> deliberating in your head and you're just sitting there. So, yeah, we were able to very quickly reach our decision, although there were two holdouts. And again, it was along racial lines. Yep. Whites in the jury were voting for guilty and the blacks for and minorities um, for, you know, not guilty. It was very racially divided. And that's all they, they said. We were not going to spend one more night in that hotel. It was not going to happen. Yeah, and, and that makes perfect sense. Um, along those racial lines, I, I heard that like just this year um, the in, you know, in um, – in polls of, of people nationwide, um, African Americans uh, have just now passed the fifty percent mark of of people who think that OJ did it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, so I yeah, I think at the time it was seventy or eighty percent of Black people thought he was not guilty, where right. something like seventy or eighty percent of whites at the time thought he was guilty. It was very, you know, very much along you know racial lines and there's still a divide because it's yes. like they're like 90 percent of 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 whites um and but now 50 percent or 51 percent something like that of uh, of african-americans so yeah and and uh, that and i experience that when i go to these you know lay people and present this case and show the evidence and they look at it with this fresh light they go oh Oh yeah, okay. Oh, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Then he really was guilty. They were really sometimes. I think they think, oh, there maybe it was a borderline call. It could have gone either way. <laughs> right. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> the physical evidence. You you can't ask for. Well, <laughs> uh, the only thing you didn't have at that crime scene was a fingerprint. That really the only <laughs> thing that you lacked. But you pretty right. much had everything else. Well, let's let's get into it, Glenn. I, I my my curiosity is super peaked now. You 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 gotta start us off with which which piece of physical evidence. Now that we're gonna get into the physical evidence part of the podcast, was the clincher for you that that the jury didn't see, and you've you've been talking to other people, lay people about for for years now. Yep, I got it. What what, what is it? Oh, that hands down the Bruno Mali shoe print. There's there's no doubt. It's the Bruno Mali that puts him at the scene. I, there's simply no doubt in my mind. So for people that don't know the case, um, and a little background that probably wasn't in the drama or even the, the ESPN thing. I, a lot of this I've read in Bill Boziak's, uh, shoe print book because Bill Boziak was the FBI examiner who did the, the testimony in the OJ case. Although okay. Henry Lee testified for defense <laughs> and actually did testify about this shoe print too, which was one yes. of, the, this was one of the first things that really took a, a, a knock to his credibility. All right, so at the scene, um, and this, you know, I, people can look the facts up of the case, but I mean, obviously, if, if you're semi-familiar with the case, you know that Nicole Brown Simpson, the essentially estranged wife of OJ at the time, and Ronald Goldman, who was a friend who had just, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't even go forward without talking about that, because the Goldman thing yeah. is crazy. That's another crazy thing. He should never have been there. No, uh, Nicole. He was Bra a waiter, right? Nicole Brown's mother. They were out eating that evening. Nicole Brown's mother, when they're getting into their car, dropped her glasses in the street, and they fell along the side of the curb. And uh, about an hour later, when they got home, mother realized she doesn't have her glasses. They call back at the restaurant. Uh, Ron Goldman was a friend of Nicole Brown, so he said, "Oh yeah, I'll go and check." Goes out outside, looks where they got into the car, and sure enough, finds the glasses right there against the curb 
and he's about to get off uh, working a little bit, and he just says, you know, I'm going to leave. I'm just going to leave a few minutes early. I'm going to run these over. I'll take care of it, and that way you don't have to come back to the, the restaurant. I'll bring them over to the house on my way home. And he shows up, of course, at they believe at the exact time that Nicole is being murdered, and just wrong, wrong time, wrong place. You know, it just right. Had the mom not dropped the glasses, he'd be alive. And it's just, or like, if he hadn't found them, if he hadn't found them, he yeah. didn't know the family because you know, different waiter, yeah, different right. night, right? It, yeah, I know. It, it, it's sad, but it's just a series of quite, quite frankly, unfortunate events that put him there at that time. Right. All right. So. All right, so at the scene, uh, which is only a couple miles from OJ's actual house, this is the house right. that his estranged wife is living in um, over at uh, Rockingham, um, which is the street it's on. And so there is a bloody, what appears to be a bloody shoe impression at the scene. And it's photographed. You know, they see it fairly early. And um, they take these photographs of it, but no one recognizes the tread pattern. And so they get the FBI involved. They send these images out. Bill Boziak does get involved. And they send these images out all around the world to different shoe manufacturers and different people. They're like, hey, does anybody recognize this pattern? This is a shoe, a shoe tread. We know it's a size 12 because they're able to, right. you know, see from the heel. And it's basically the heel pattern. And there's also a little cut in the corner of it. Um, and if you ever, if you have fancy shoes, look at your heel and you'll often see on the instep a little diagonal cut. And that was a very common thing you'd see in European Italian shoes. So they knew it had to be a high end Italian shoe, but, or not necessarily Italian, but a, a high end, uh, high end shoe. Um, and so they then they start looking for, for this pattern and eventually they get a contact from a guy by the name of Bruno Mali who said, yeah, I recognize that. That's, that's my shoe. Right. And, and so he then contacts them and says, yeah, this is a, our, a pattern that we use, our tread pattern. And so Bill Boziak flies over to Milan, Italy, gets to tour the factory, look <laughs> at the different molds that they use. And there were essentially, they would use the same sole, but then put two different tops on top of it. There were two different models of the shoe, if you will. There was a high top version that used it called it called the Lorenzo model. And then there was a low top called the Lyon model, L-Y-O-N, Lyon, France. So these were the two, uh, the two kinds of shoes you, you could have using that tread pattern. And, you know, so then the next thing was, okay, so we know it's a Bruno Mali size 12. OJ is a size 12. Well, that's good. But now we need to find some evidence that he owned these shoes. And, of course, they don't find them. They never find them. Uh, those you know, shoes. When, right. They never find those shoes. And they never found bloody clothes or anything like that of OJ's either. And, you know, the belief is he ditched them, you know, and that might have been one of the things he was doing when he, before he was about to get on a plane to go to Chicago for the night, that he might have gone to some dumpster and just ditched all these clothes. But they never found right. them. <clears throat> the best they could get for trial uh, was the testimony of a buddy who was playing golf with OJ and said, oh, yeah, he used to have a pair of shoes like that. I saw him playing golf with them just a few days before, you know, the murder. But, you know, it, this is just some guy, right. right? This is some guy who thought he saw OJ wearing them. It's not the physical evidence. So you got that. And and again, I know we'll get into it a little bit. OJ had some of the best trial lawyers 
at the time you could possibly have. He really did have the dream team. Well, you could exactly. not have asked for for better lawyers. I mean, it just it and they and nothing got past them. They challenged every single thing as much as they could. But anyway, okay. So, um so they're looking for the shoes and the other thing that they're able to do is get a Bloomingdale's employee uh in New York City uh where they did a lot of shopping. They were in New York a lot, you know, OJ was a correspondent, you know, for you know for the media, uh for sport, you know, for sports. And they spent a lot of time in New York, Nicole and, and OJ. In fact, when the gloves come into it, um the the Arius gloves, these fancy gloves that were bought uh, this comes up as well. Did I say Bloomingtons or Bloomingdales? Bloom, Bloomingdales? Well, yeah, Bloomingdales, were, I think that's where they bought the gloves. Yes. Uh, well, but it's also uh, one of the stores that sh- sold the shoes, the Bruno Mali shoes. Oh, okay. And they could never find any trail showing that he purchased these. And in fact, what they did was they got a store clerk who testified that, yes, he remembers OJ coming in, buying them. He remembers it because it was OJ. It was, a, you know... He, it stood out in his right, mind. It's a big and deal. He, yep, and he remembered OJ paying cash for them, which is why they never had a credit card or any kind of record for it. Got it. So that's the best they could get for trial, but without being able to produce those shoes, and OJ never had to testify, you know, because of, he has a right not to incriminate himself. Right. So that's it. But and they're not able to he, prove he did that element. Say at some point, I don't know, after the trial or something yes. that. that 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 well, he never had a pair of shoes like those that that it, you you know basically wouldn't be caught dead in those shoes that they he thought they were ugly shoes right well and and that's exactly it so we all know the outcome and this is what I'm I'm always telling the lay people you all know the outcome of that they weren't able to prove a, a key element there and you know we get into the other evidence but then when they go to the civil trial the rules are different in civil yes. court he can't say well I'm not I'm not going I'm not going to testify no no he now has to answer these questions and they depose him and so on video they have him being asked about the Bruno Mali shoes and and the video is chilling. I mean, you can see this on, on Yahoo. You just watch the video of how flippant he is and what a joke it is. And he's laughing and, you know, this is stupid. And why am I even here? You know, and just it, it, it's it's he's such a sociopath. <laughs> and you can see it in this video. But when he's asked about these shoes, you're right, Eric. It's exactly what he said. I I never owned a pair of those shoes. I would never wear. And this is the phrase he said. Those ugly ass shoes. That was I would never wear something a shoe like that. Those ugly ass shoes. I would never wear that. I wouldn't be caught dead in a in in shoe in those kinds of shoes. And so, because again, now it's a twenty four media cycle, and everyone is watching this. There is a sports photographer by the name of Skull S C U L L. And he's watching this, and he sees this, and he starts going through his photo collection, and. He go because he's a sports photographer. He remembers photographing OJ in December of 1993. This is six months before the murders, right. and OJ is down in Miami receiving an award. It's a Miami Buffalo Bills game, and OJ is receiving an award, uh, you know, at halftime. And Skull takes a photograph of him of OJ, and as he's walking through the end zone, you can see he's wearing the Lorenzo high top. Bruno Mollies, and there they are. I mean, it's it's perfect. He's clearly wearing them, and 
skull had this angle. It was this perfect angle where he catches OJ mid-stride, and you can actually see the foot off the ground. <laughs> you can see the tread on the on the underside wow. of the shoe. There it is. So not only do you have objective evidence of him wearing it six months before the murders, you can even see the tread in the photograph. It's unbelievable. And then, I mean, so, and that's it. That, for me, done. Now, OJ's lawyers in the civil trial say, well, this is a fake photograph. They faked it. And so then they bring this Photoshop expert. Well, not Photoshop, but they bring this expert. How would you fake, you know, a photograph and all this? And so the prosecution turns around and then produces something like 20 or some other sports photographers who are also there at the same time photographing OJ. And they all have him wearing the Bruno Molly shoes, except only wow. in Skull's photograph is at the perfect angle where you can see the tread and everything. It's it's just, right. and anyone can go, can go online and look this. Just look up that S-C-U-L-L and you'll see the, the photo that I'm talking about. It's it. There it is. He's, it's done. He, he had size 12 Bruno Molly's before the murders, something like only a couple hundred pairs of those were sold in the U.S. from, you know, 1989 to 1993. I mean, some ridiculously small number. And in size 12, these are Italian shoes. Italians kind of run on the the slender, smaller size. So size 12 <laughs> is a pretty big shoe. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> that to me is the, the most damning evidence. In the blood of the victims at the scene and here's his right. tread and I'll, I'll wrap this up too because you know, pe people might wonder well what did henry lee have to say about that yeah <laughs> henry lee said during the trial that's not a shoe print and in fact what he said was this other thing over here that just looked like leaves it looked like stained leaves or something on the ground he said that's a that's a shoe print this isn't a shoe print uh, Boziak was blown away because you've got this clear pattern tread, this little zigzag tread, right. and it, it's got the size and shape, and any footwear expert looking at it would go, no, that's a tread pattern. That's clearly a tread pattern. But Henry Lee testified as, you know, a great forensic scientist, no, no, that's not, that's not a, that's not even a footwear pattern. So, I mean, this is where the forensic community was a bit shocked and went, what? That's craziness. So, right. that, why, why would he say that? Well, and, you know, um, when I when I first, but right before I got hired, I, I was trying to kind of study up on forensic stuff so I could do well on the on the test, and uh, so I got myself a copy of uh, Criminalistics, uh, which is um, if for some reason Safferstein's book. Yeah. Okay. Which, if uh, if someone is not into forensic science and listening to this podcast, is like. It's like the textbook that if you take some sort of forensic science class, that's usually the textbook that's that's uh, that's used, and it's <laughs> it, and it's it was my textbook when it I was, was your in, textbook. Un there you in go. undergrad, <laughs> and not only that, but the advanced handbooks that he wrote, and then when I turned around and started teaching, and you know, for the lay people, I would teach this for my students. That was the textbook I made them get was Safferstein. Exactly, it, it's it's like the book to get, yeah. and there is a like case study kind of thing in the middle of it. Where, I mean, it, it's it's appropriately, you know, kind of adjusted to be in textbook form. But it's basically Safferstein going off on Henry Lee. Because it's, it's another kind of aspect that Henry Lee comes into the OJ trial with uh, shoe prints. And it's that, uh, evidently, Henry Lee 
was really critical of the crime scene work that was done on this case. Oh, yes. Um, but we'll get into that because yes. rightfully so. <laughs> rightfully so. Right. But one of the things that he brought up was that they didn't take any photos or do anything with this evidence over here of this other shoe print. Uh, and there was no record of uh, them doing taking uh -huh. any pictures or anything about this other shoe print off to the side. Yeah, okay. It's a shoe print in the cement. Like, when the cement was wet, someone had stepped in, in the wet <laughs> cement and left a shoe print. And it's just insane that he would bring this up as okay while there were other problems with the collection of evidence um by lapd this specific thing bringing this up as oh you didn't take pictures of this shoe print like like you know the hollywood walk of fame when you put your hands in the cement right this is clearly not part of the crime <laughs> obviously the cement was laid years before and whoever left this shoe print had nothing to do with the crime and it, it's not relevant at all uh but uh for some reason he goes off on on this thing of this is another example of how they failed in their crime scene work uh, and really reveals how uh, at least from the impression that i get from how safferstein wrote this section uh, of <laughs> How he was basically just making shit up uh, to benefit the defense case uh, in the OJ trial. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely some some questionable things that were said. Although, and, and again, as we'll get into, I'm sure in a bit here or in the next episode, there were definitely some questionable practices. But what people uh, questionable practices in evidence collection, and that's one of the right. things you know that has to be looked at. You know, this is a time before accreditation, and, and a lot of people will point to this case. I mean, I remember when I was getting and going through my – when I was going through this process of trying to get into a crime lab and just starting out in forensic science and talking about accreditation and when I joined the, the crime lab – we were talking about, you know, our, we were just finished our first cycle of accreditation. You know, so much was referring back to the OJ case. And a lot of people look at the evidence collection that happened in that case where people either weren't wearing gloves or uh, putting swabs in their pockets, uh, you know, and, and collecting evidence and putting it in various pockets of that, not securing it, not taking it back to the lab. You know, all these things that were done. We didn't know any better, and we honestly right. didn't know any better. DNA was – the PCR DNA was just emerging. At that time, all you had was RFLP, and you needed about a quarter size of blood uh, to be able to type it. And so for PCR typing to just be coming out, it was called PCR DQ Alpha, uh, which was one of the kinds of DNA that you know uh, was just becoming you know, new – People weren't, people didn't think about that, that kind of thing. And really, they look, you look back at the OJ case and you go, well, this was a watershed moment for us to go, yeah, okay. Yeah. So it, I honestly look at it was a catalyst to accreditation for a lot of agencies. Absolutely. So you're right. We, we should stop now uh, and, and come back here with the next episode to go you know, a little more in depth in other other evidence and uh, the different problems that did come up in the collection of evidence. Sure. Yep. Um, so um, we'll, we'll stop it here. I'll start up here again in a minute. Um, 
you know, don't forget to listen uh, every week or so when or new so. episodes come out. <laughs> hey, oh, you know what? We got to do something here. The AI, oh, what's co- that? The AI is coming yes. up. Yep. Well, oh, yeah, 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 let, yeah, let's, yeah. Yep. Let's talk about the AI real fast and and what's going on with that. First of all, um, I will not be there. I finally had to let Jim no. me know. Yeah, I'm going to miss my first one in 17 years. It's terrible, but I. I just I I can't get the time with uh, with my work. There's a bunch of stuff going on. There's some high profile stuff going on in Minnesota right now, and I just there's just a whole bunch of issues going on, and I'm just frankly not I'm I I can't do it. I I can't come out, and I'm very <sighs> disappointed. Um, I don't I hate missing the II. I've been to like I said every one since I started, but. <sighs> Not going to be there. So, Eric, I'll be joining you for the podcast probably remotely. Yes. Podcast yes. is still going. I'll just do a remote. Podcast is still going. Um, and uh, got some guests lined up. Um, and um, should be a very interesting discussion about conclusions. And yep. Yep. I, I keep I, <laughs> I keep asking Heidi Eldridge to to join in for the um, uh, for the actual podcast uh, panel discussion. Uh, but we, we tend to be behind the ball on planning ahead, go figure, um, and, and asking, you know, late in the game. And she's always, you know, for last year and then again this year, uh, she's always teaching something else. So maybe that's a, that's a good, uh, a good person to grab on the Tuesday night, um, to, uh, to get on the podcast. Cause we've never had her on before. And I know that she's got uh, a lot of great, interesting things to say. Uh, especially with how she, involved she is now with uh, OSAC and ASB and and uh, all the research that she's now doing. So um, yeah, great. But another thing that we we've been asked to let people know about um, is uh, I'm so excited because I, I really want to do this <laughs> is uh, Tom Busey uh, and Austin Hicklin and probably a bunch of other people as well. Brad Ullery, a, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, are doing a, a eye tracking study. So, uh, if you want to compare fingerprints while some sort of contraption is tracking where your eye, what your eyes look at, uh, they're signing people up um, to to do this during the IAI. I, I think it's like a two and a half hour commitment, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's well. I'm looking up at times. Time slots are each day, eight to ten thirty. 10.30 to 1 p.m., 3.30, uh, and 3.30 to 6 p.m. each day. So every day, August 8th through 12th, they're collecting data. Um, that's oh, going to be and, so much fun. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and uh, for D.C. area people, uh, they'll be collecting data at Noblis in Falls Church, Virginia, August 4th through the 5th. So if you live in the D.C. area but you're not going out to the IEI and you're hearing this, uh, they'll be collecting data there at Noblis too. So either either one. But if you're going to the II and this international people, anyone who might be listening, if you're going to the II, yeah, you know this is another set of data and studies that the Noblis FBI group is doing, and they're n- n- modeling their next set of studies after the Tom Busey eye tracking approach, which has produced some phenomenal data itself. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. So call out there. To all my eagle eyes out there listening to the uh, podcast, uh, uh, like we talked about last week, <laughs> let's 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 all us eagle eyes sign up so that we can we can show how great we are at uh, at finding stuff and uh, and make <laughs> making IDs. 
Um, and you lazy and, eyes that I can identify with, you you guys you guys go to <laughs> balance balance it out. If, if say you've been supervising another unit and not really involved in latent prints recently, Ouch. then uh, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. No, um, and if you're from the DC area, wait your turn. They're doing it there in DC. Go ahead and do it in DC. Let us all other parts of the country people have a chance in Cincinnati. Um. But yeah, Penny was Penny and I were just talking about this actually the other day. Uh, how we're we're both trying to find the right time to sign up, uh, because um, I mean, for years I've been reading the papers that that uh, that have come out of Indiana, and I've been like, oh, I wish I could do the eye tracking thing. So now's my chance. So I got to make sure to get in on the game this this year. All right. So um, as always, listen to us. Uh, you know, at least when the episodes come out. Um, and please email in comments or questions or other thoughts, uh, to Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or to Eric at rayforensics.com. And, uh, either one of those websites will also, uh, can, you know, get our contact information. Uh, as, uh, it says at the beginning of every episode, uh, if you're interested in supporting us and, uh, you know, some of the costs that it takes to host all these podcasts, we're up to 130 some odd now. Um, you can find us on patreon.com. Uh, episodes are also available on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or on iTunes, and a few of them now also on YouTube. So listen to us every week, and we'll see you guys here soon. Bye. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Music on this podcast, courtesy of Blue Wave Theory, an instrumental surf rock band from New Jersey. If you're in the area, check out Blue Wave Theory at the Asbury Park Surf Music Fest in Asbury Park, New Jersey on August 27th.